and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. So we are back after having taken a week off, uh, Tom with his house moving and parental duties and whatnot. Yes, it's still going, but I have time now, a bit, <laughs> a bit more time, enough time. A little bit eased back a little bit. So, um, yeah, I don't know, taking a week off, being able to watch some other stuff that's not Criterion, seen anything good? Uh, I watched Hellraiser. I think actually I brought that up before on the previous podcast, but I watched Hellraiser again, mm. and uh, that's really great. I've been going on a horror kick, so uh, Critters, I'd never seen that. And- horror kick prompted by the, uh, the great documentary In Search of Darkness. Yeah, you gave me that, and I was like, ooh. It's, it's like a four, four and a half hour long doco that just takes you year by year through 80s horror movies. Uh, there's a little recommendation if anyone's interested, like gives you some weird little stuff to seek out if you've never seen it. Yeah, shit that I didn't know of. Uh, in particular, there's two films that I'm trying to find now to watch. One is The Stuff. Yep. Which is about killer ice cream. Yep. Which is kind of in the same vein as Killer Clowns from Outer Space, kind of slapsticky. Yeah, it's one of those like great like early '80s like horror comedies that's like really gory and awesomely effect driven, but it's also kind of very tongue in cheek. Like we're gonna play with the genre and have fun. Yeah, and it's making fun of commodities and yeah, that sort of stuff. so that's that's that, that sounds awesome. And then also Society. Yeah, the Brian Yasner film, which is amazing. Yeah, so I, I really really want to see that since it's kind of. Seems to have the same body horror esque shit as you know, yeah, the, kind the of Cronenberg stuff. The last twenty minutes of Society, it's like Society is one of those movies where you put it on and you're like, "This is pretty B grade and pretty average." Like it, it's, I know it's building to something, but what the hell is it building towards? And can I be bothered sticking with this? And if you stick with it, and where it goes in the finale is like you are duly rewarded. <laughs> It is some gnarly, gnarly weirdness at the end of society. I remember I was watching it one night, um, like for the like I'd never seen it before, but like a year or two ago I'd put it on, and it hit like the finale scene where shit goes wild, and Claire walked in the room and was like, it was one of those classic comic, like comical, like walk in the room, like nope, turn and walk immediately out. <laughs> so yeah. Um, what about you? I don't know. I've been trying to churn through stuff because I realize we're now like, you know, six months into the year and I don't really, you know, obviously with everything that's going on with COVID, there's been very few films coming out. So I'm like, fuck, what's actually going to be at this point? My end of year list currently has two films on it. So I'll try and like power through a bunch of stuff that's been dropped on VOD to try and, you know, find something interesting. Uh, Surprisingly loved The Gentleman, Guy Ritchie's film that mm-hmm. that really I, I know I had I had a lot of fun with that one I, well, you said uh, earlier in the week when we were obviously off mic that you said that it was kind of completes the trilogy of Lockstock and Snatch yeah and it, Gentleman. it was the first time in like 20 years Guy Ritchie has done a film where I was like it feels like a worthy predecessor to those films so and Hugh Grant is just amazing in it like yeah, he's awesome he's had such a great like resurgence lately playing like weird supporting characters like Paddington 2 and uh, uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, like weird character stuff where it's like, 
oh yeah, you, I forget that you're a great actor because... Well, because he did a whole bunch of kind of questionable <laughs> shit. Yeah, like <laughs> like shitty rom-coms, like in yeah. the 90s and stuff. Like, So, of course you, you would think, forget you would forget about him. Yeah, until. it's like ever since like Four Weddings and a Funeral, he just became the whole like, oh, you're the Notting Hill guy. <laughs> but it's, yeah. he's awesome. Um, I know like Wendy, uh, Ben Zeiton's uh, new film, um, the guy that did, hadn't made a film since uh, Beasts of the, of the Southern Wild. So he hasn't made a film in like, in like seven, eight years or something, and it was fun. Like, it was fine. <laughs> I, I like filmmakers like that that, mm. that take a long time. They either, they either take a long time to make a film, or they they let an, an, an idea sit and like really build. And... Yeah, I mean, it, like Wendy wasn't all I was hoping it would be because I loved Beasts of the Southern Wild, but it it, it was it was enjoyable. Like you know, it was it was a decent watch, mm-hmm. but um. I mean, other than that, uh, now that I guess the bigger thing we should probably discuss is now that restrictions have kind of started to ease up here in Australia, we're going to start working on our Patreon stuff that we teased a couple of weeks back. Yeah, well, now we can have people in the room together, so yeah. we can do a, a recording for, uh, we'll be doing the castle. Yeah, did we even actually properly explain the premise of what we'll be doing? I think we just kind of teased some stuff. Okay, well, let's go into it now. Yeah. Uh, the idea is we'll we'll pick... A theme, and we'll do a trilogy of commentaries. Uh, the first theme will be Australian films, which I think is obviously fitting. Mm-hmm. We'd like to put a spotlight on some of the more memorable uh, Australian films that we've seen. Yeah, and uh, going forward, obviously, we'd be very interested to hear what kind of stuff you guys would like to hear us do some commentary tracks for, like whether it's a, you know, picking three films from a filmmaker's, you know, oeuvre. And, like, the kind of dip, like... I throw out, like, the Spielberg would be interesting. Like, you pick, like, a blockbuster Spielberg, an arty Spielberg, and then, like, where he is now? (laughs) Yeah. Well, we were brainstorming this a while back and thinking, oh, it'd be great to... If you're not going to do Criterion... But we like like the through line of uh, learning about an artist, like, Mm. say, Fellini, which we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. Uh, You gain a certain knowledge, which gives you a really good contextual uh, knowledge of, of the films. And so I was thinking, well, let's do, say... If you did Spielberg, but then of course that's like thirty plus yeah, films. Yeah, like where do you go with that? So it'd be like, all right, let's pick like something that exemplifies like blockbuster Spielberg, then like something that I like to call like Phase Two Spielberg, where it's like him getting into the more dramatic stuff, like you know, Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, Schindler's List, Bridge of Spies, Bridge of Spies, which I, which I watched recently as well, which was great. It's 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 probably his last good film, I think. Um, yeah. Munich, stuff like that, and then. Getting into, like, the late period where it's like, do we dare talk about Ready Player One or The Post or something like that? And the issues of, like, what happens when a amazing but, filmmaker is no longer good? <laughs> but that's fine. I think that works on a commentary because you do get to talk about yeah. the, the through line, the adventure that is a filmmaker's filmography. Hmm. So, yeah, we're, we're going to pick these themes and uh, on the Patreon, like, obviously, if you hit that tier every month, we'll kind of put out three commentary tracks for films that are kind of on these topics and as tom said we're going to kick off with australian films and i think we've decided uh it's going to be the two of us and our good friend lee who has been on uh, a couple episodes of criterion with us before and we each kind of pick uh one of our favorite australian films and we're gonna sit down talk about them and talk about australian cinema Mm. so i think you you kind of teased we're going to do the castle i think uh strictly ballroom Mm-hmm. And the one, uh, the last one was our uh, Wake in Fright. 
Which I haven't seen. I yes. haven't seen that one. And that, that was my pick. I love Wake and Fright. <laughs> I think the last time we, we had Leon was... It was a little while ago, but it was for uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. That, mm. um, which is at our local best best cinema in Australia, the Astor. Yes, the the Astor Cinema here in Melbourne. The the best rep house ever. Um, yeah, it was for the, like, the 50th anniversary of 2001, and we did a special episode on that. But... Um, yeah, so keep an eye out for that. We're now, like we said, restrictions have been eased. We're going to start recording those in the coming week or two, and uh, we'll let you know when everything's up and running. So watch this space, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But on the note of, uh, as Tom said, like discussing a filmmaker having an idea of, or somewhat of an idea of their kind of growth as an artist, uh, let's dive into E. Vitaloni uh, by Federico Fellini from 1953. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to do a synopsis first off? Sure can. This is the uh, the back of the Criterion box. Five young men linger in a post-adolescent limbo, dreaming of adventure and escape from their small seaside town. They while away their time, spending the lira doled out by their indulgent families on drink, women, and nights at the local pool hall. Federico Fellini's second solo directorial effort, originally released in the US as The Young and the Passionate, is a semi-autobiographical masterpiece on sharply drawn character sketches. Skirt chaser Fausto, uh, forced to marry a girl he, he has impregnated. Alberto, the perpetual child. Leopoldo, a writer thirsting for fame. Moraldo, the only member of the group troubled by a moral conscience. An international success and recipient of... Oh, that's getting into what I have for trivia. Anyway, Ivitaloni uh, compassionately details a, f- a year in the life of a group of small-town layabouts struggling to find meaning in their lives. Well, that's what Vitaloni means, right? Layabout? Yeah, the, the closest English translation to Vitaloni it, like, would be slacker. Like, the slackers. Like, the, the layabouts, the, the guys that are going nowhere, the aimless, I guess. Yeah, all these guys are... I mean, they're quite frankly assholes, womanizing and whatnot. But some of them are. Moraldo, there's are. a Moraldo's an interesting character. I, I would argue as well. Uh, Leopoldo has some semi-redeeming kind of features there, but uh, like you know, most of my vitriol for this episode will be pointed at Fausto, who is yeah. <laughs> an absolute protagonist tool. Uh, but I thought it was it was interesting that. Uh, the distributors at the time, they didn't. They wanted to change the name, mm. thinking that it's not a kind of it's not a marketable name. I don't know why you would think that. I, I think as but. well, like in a little bit of research that I did, it was uh, like Vitaloni. Uh, Vitalo is like sounds really close to veal, like beef, like meaning young and un, like touched kind of you know, meat. So that's like, it kind of sounded too close to Veal. So the marketing team just says we can't market a film called Veal. Yeah, essentially, like, or something that's kind of close to that, yeah. But Fellini said, we're not going to change that, uh, because when he was younger, he was uh, was like pulling a prank on some lady and and he'd been called that. Uh, And to him, it meant the unemployed middle class and mother's boys, (laughs) they don't get disciplined. And, And these five guys... Um, with the exception of Moraldo, I would say, uh, are, they're in their thirties, but they're kids basically. Yeah, they're not prepared to jump into any kind of responsibility. Which essentially is the whole becomes the entire crux of the film. It is like a examination, like let's look at the life of these five friends who 
been friends since childhood. They're now in their early 30s at a point where you should be getting your shit together. You should, like, you know... Well and truly. Getting on with life. Um, and they are still kind of stuck in that perpetual adolescence and have not taken that further step. So what, let's examine that and then kind of, you know, take from that what you will as an audience, whether you agree, disagree, you know, have issues with, or hopefully it, like, might prompt you to kind of examine your own life, I guess. I, well, I guess so, but I, I thought this I, was... I, I, I don't necessarily say I agree with that, but I think that's, like, the intention of the film. It's kind of interesting because we're pretty familiar with Fellini now, and I always imagine when I'm going to watch a Fellini film, there's going to be... I think this word always comes up when we're talking about Fellini in every single one of our podcasts, and that word is carnival. Yes. I think they always use the word carnival. Carnival or circus, something like that. There's always like a show within a show. Yeah. This film's always like, there's always some kind of show. And in this film, it's, that is true. It's in there, yeah. There's a masquerade ball, which is very Fellini-esque. But you have Leopoldo, who is an aspiring writer who finally gets his first play produced with a famous actor. Like, there Mm -hmm. is the, the show of it all is in there. Yeah, and there's also the variety show with, uh, with Sergio and Mm -hmm. and whatnot at the end. But, um, I got 20 minutes into the film and I realized I, I can't actually, I'm not getting a f- taste of the, of the feeling that I'm, a, that I know. Yes. And this is, this is his second film. Uh, third that he has a director credit credit on okay. second is a solo director. So solo director, right. first, first film he made was variety of lights, which we did way back in like the 60s, 70s or 80s of the spine number. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was co-directed but with Fellini and um, another man who I am blanking on his name. Apologies. I, I just didn't really like Variety, variety Lights that much. <laughs> and uh, had White Sheik. White Sheik, which we also have done uh, quite a while ago. That's from, that's from a year early, 1952. Yes. Um, and that was the one where it's like the woman obsessed with the, uh, the soap opera serials in the cinema and she goes yeah. off to, like, you know, instead of... She's supposed to be meeting the in-laws, but then gets kind of swept up on this adventure of the filmmaking and, yeah. you know, examining the what-ifs, I guess. Yeah. And the, there's the show within the show there. And I, I, I kind of was intrigued because I was, I'm watching this and I'm thinking it, it's, it's, not, it's not half-baked or shit in, t- to any degree, but it doesn't have that, um, that spark, that kind of um, vitality yeah. that Fellini usually brings... Uh, to the table and this is so early on in his filmography that I'm starting to think that it's taking a it takes him a while before he really starts to play 100% um like look I've got my notes in front of me and the first thing I have written on my page is this is similar to Variety Lights and the White Sheik in that it feels like proto Fellini mm. like there there are somewhat elements in there that you it's very clearly like watching you like, and if someone's like, this is Fellini, you're like, oh yeah, uh, of course I oh, get that. If, if you watch Armacord or if you watch, uh, eight and a half, yeah. it's just a fucking festival. Yeah. And this seems like the proto versions of that. So that I, I kind of wanted, I wrote down, I wanted to ask you like leading on from that. And I love that you have the same reaction. Like, so what, makes a Fellini film and what and what of those elements seems to be lacking from this one that makes us kind of be like huh it's Fellini but it's not quite okay uh a lot of the Fellini that I know that I enjoy there's always if not a a central character there'll be a 
a character that has a big part, and that is a strong female. Yes. Usually, usually played by well, in in uh, the White Sheik, you've got Julia Messina, which is his wife, who also is in La Strada, uh, yeah. Juliet of the Spirits, Knights of Cabiria. Yeah. Um, you know, essentially his muse. Yeah, yeah. And then even and in uh, in Armacord, you don't have her, but you you have a lot of really theatrical uh, strong ladies. Yeah, and and the key point of Armacord is uh, another Fellini thing, where it's the autobiographical nature of the storytelling mm-hmm. uh, where Armacord is almost essentially like I got a real sense with Eva Deloney that it is like pr- not only proto Fellini but it's almost proto Armacord where it's like let's spend a year in the life of a small seaside town specifically looking at a group of young men but with Armacord it's focusing on like late teenagers where it's, it's you're okay with them being layabouts and being in a kind of uh stuck adolescence because they are on that cusp whereas with Eva Deloney it's when they're, they're they're beyond that point so when you see these characters you know with Arrested Development you're like nope I don't like you guys should not be acting like this yeah um, but uh, there's the yeah there's the the colourful female roles which it's which it's lacking there's I, I kind of got the sense that a lot of the shots were I, I kind of want to say cookie cutter but I don't want to be that cruel. No, no, I, but, I get. But there is like a, a suppression of of what he would normally do. It seems, and I was trying to work out why. I, I think the best way is not to describe it as a suppression, but it's a a slow development of because, mm. like, knowing that this is his third film, like, it's. I don't think he's suppressing those things. I think it's those things are starting to bubble to the to the top. Like, he's starting to get those ideas of what he can do with his camera, what he can do with the narrative, what he can do with his lighting, where he can take a film narratively, structurally, uh, dealing with, like, you know, pushing beyond neorealism even and what he can eventually make. And that stuff's just kind of starting to simmer up. And so you get little bits of it here, but it's not quite. The Masquerade Ball with Alberto drinking heavily and dancing in that that big head. Yeah. That's... That, that's probably the highlight of the film for myself in that you kind of... It, it's it's kind of surreal. It takes you out of uh, a reality. Yeah. And just puts you in some kind of dreamscape, which, um, which, is, which feels more Fellini-esque to me. Yeah. Um, There's definitely an absence of the dream kind of narrative yeah. stuff here. But certainly in the first half, there wasn't really any of that going on. And uh, I know that The White Sheik, which released the year before... Um, was a critical failure. Yep. Was a commercial failure. Yep. And even and he wanted to get Lestrada made. He'd written a draft of Lestrada and was trying to get yeah. that financed. But and they and and yeah, and the, I think he was contracted at the time. So they said, look, we're not going to make Lestrada because we don't understand it's, it. <laughs> it's not marketable. I mean, and it's a strange film. I, I loved. I think I saw a quote from a producer that was like. I don't understand what genre this is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, this is just stuff that happens. But then, you know, he eventually gets to make La Strada and it's like goddamn masterpiece. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's, it's, to me, it's like the first real Fellini film. Yeah. Uh, so you can see why... If You can see why it's not quite there to me so that he goes, okay, well, I, I can't make La Strada. I got to make a safe film. 
I got to make a marketable film. Yeah. I suppose I'll make a comedy. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was himself and his two co-writers kind of. Um, I think the producer had thrown out. How about doing something autobiographical? We know you grew up in a small seaside town. Have you got any weird, rambunctious stories from your youth? And it was him and his two other write- uh, co-writers kind of kicking about ideas, and it kind of they stumbled upon this narrative structure of, you know, the the Lothario who gets a girl pregnant and but then doesn't want to commit, and then it's like, okay, we've got something here. Let's kind of build and go. Yeah. So the the writers, I think there's there's three writers, and they're all like plucking. Mm-hmm from their own lives and they're kind of embellishing and obviously in the taking some kind of fictional elements here and throwing it into oh yeah yeah um like it doesn't get to full like you know eight and a half armor cord level where it's like flat out really autobiographical for Fellini like it's it, it's that's again why I keep going back to it's proto Fellini it's kind of getting those elements ready for where he'll eventually utilize them perfectly but then but then there's the music with uh, Anita Rota oh amazing and, and that's that has a kind of whimsy that, that I'm, you know, we're all familiar with. Yeah. And uh, it is like... And that was, that was fantastic. Yeah. And it goes hand in hand with a Fellini film. Like a Fellini film is not the same without a Nero score almost. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, it's all familiar, but it's, you, you're just, I felt myself waiting for the Fellini scenes. Yes. It was almost like it was co-directed. That's what it felt like. Yeah, it, it's Fellini with training wheels on. Almost <laughs> yeah. like there's something yeah. kind of holding him back that's not letting him kind of, you know, you're doing it, buddy. You're doing it. You're riding on your own. Yeah. Um, but it's not shit. It's, no, I no. had a, it. Was it's a fine film. And I think where it becomes fine is in the back half. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I was looking up, like you know, what categorically what do people define as like the key elements of a Fellini film and the one that stood out to me is he allowed like letting the narrative take you in unexpected ways or like in uh, unexpected ventures um and that is where this film ends up going you you settle in with like the first 45 minutes to an hour and you get kind of almost sick of watching these five guys just hang out and treat people like shit like in particular Fausto you get like I I can't remember the last time I've wanted to punch a film character in the face so bad like I I hated Fausto as a character he, which means relentless. he did a great job <laughs> he is relentless but I but I will say that uh, because he no one is uh, slapping him over the face yes when that finally does happen uh, it's a really great moment in the film. Oh, it's amazing. Because he's he is so deserving of that. Uh, and you've spent so much time wanting to fucking hit the guy and go like, dude, come on. Yes. Come on. Yeah. And other characters have their kind of uh, shutdown moments and they're kind of, you know, a little bit sadder in some degree because these those characters haven't been as kind of dis- deplorable as Fausto. But in the back half of this film it really starts to take a twist and a turn into interesting directions where it's like oh I'm now really getting a sense of Fellini where it's like I did not expect the film to go in this direction it's surprising the hell out of me and here we go let's are you talking in in particular when Sandra who's Fausto's wife Mm -hmm. decides you know what fuck this guy oh in particular that like the whole last 25 minutes half hour like yeah that's amazing I, d- I did say just before that there's not a strong woman, but but uh, actually Sandra, um, when she makes that, it's almost like a, a protest hmm. um, to Fausto, where she goes, you know what, you're, you're sleeping around, you're being a dick, uh, we got a baby, I'm going to leave, and 
And I mean, this is the the catalyst that makes him change and grow up. Which makes me wonder if, because again, like the film picks up so incredibly at that point where it's like the woman, like Sandra becomes amazingly strong, like you said, makes a stand, draws a line in the sand and upends Fausto's world. It's almost like Fellini has written that and made that section of the film and been like, that's interesting. Yeah. What if in the future, instead of spending half an hour of film following the piece of shit husband, being like, oh, no, I fucked up. Where's my wife and baby? Oh, now I feel bad and regret. Wouldn't it be more interesting if we follow the strong woman who is like, fuck this guy? Yeah. And that's kind of where Fellini ends up going with his career. But Lestrada does that. that that's what and, I mean. And he'd already written Lestrada. But... I, I would argue our protagonist for Lestrade is Julieta Messina. Like, we are essentially following her on this journey and we are seeing this world through her eyes. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what I mean. Like, following the different protagonist than you would think to normally portray. Like, on the outset, you'd be like, oh, of course the protagonist of Lestrade is... Um, uh, what's his name? Um, Quinn? Oh, no, that's the actor. Yeah, and Anthony Quinn. Thank you. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, I just watched him in something the other day. Like, what was it? Um, Anthony Quinn, like, it, this big strong man guy who's now on travels the world, like, the country on a motorcycle as a circus for You'd be like, great, let's follow him. No, let's follow the woman that he treats like shit who eventually learns to adapt and grow beyond this world. Maybe that's why they thought it wasn't marketable. Yeah. Because you know, it, it should have been, well, why don't you follow the guy? Yeah, exactly. And it's, but it's, and Evidaloni seems like it is essentially you get to that Fellini thing where it's like Sandra is the interesting character that like I I would love to have seen her scenes of deciding to leave, but it is great that we still she does that as a character, but we're presented it through Fausto's eyes. So right, you, she has her reaction, and it feels almost all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean you you know you know what expected because obviously you can put yourself in her shoes. Oh, of course, the whole, the whole time. I'm surprised she waited that long. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> But, yeah, you, you need... Fellini would otherwise normally, given, you know, 10 years down in, to his career, say, let's give her way more screen time. Yeah, that's where the interesting conflict is coming from. It's not from these guys being layabouts, slacker, piece of shit, drinking guys. Who cares? Like, who are the people that they're affecting? Mm. And what does that mean to their lives? Let's and, follow that. And Fausto's father is, like, a really interesting character that they spend no time on yeah we, we were watching this together via zoom and when um fausto's father took off his belt and started whipping the shit out and i started fist pumping in the air yeah. i was so excited it's it's great it's really great <laughs> yeah <laughs> but the film the film doesn't really give you any insight into those characters no you the fausto is just reacting to to them all of a sudden doing these things on screen yeah um it, it it's it's not by by no means is it a bad film. It is no. it's a very good film. But I, it, I loved the cinematography and the lighting. Yeah. Oh my god. And there's little amazing moments of like that lend, like okay the the like pushing beyond neo realism stuff that I kind of brought up briefly. Like it's there are little Fellini esque moments in there. Like they live in a seaside town, yet perpetually in the background you hear the noise of a train, and like the train whistle blowing, signifying people are leaving. People are leaving this okay. world and they are getting out of this town. So is that foreshadowing Moraldo's Yeah, decision? and it, it's kind of a constant reminder in the background of like, you guys can move on. You can grow. You can leave. You can get on with your lives, but you're choosing not to. Mm. And we're going to perpetually remind you and the audience about that by with a train whistle being like, 
you, all aboard. You, you're going to grow up. You're going to get out of here. You're going to do anything. That's what, nope. That's great. <laughs> so there's, there's these wonderful stuff. And then again, it, it all ties perfectly at the end with Moraldo eventually boarding that train. Because there's nothing in that town in the way that they shoot it that signifies that there's even a train station there. Yeah, it, it, it feels... <laughs> It feels like they're entrenched because they're in the middle of nowhere and they can't get out. Yeah. Because it is just a decision. Mm. Uh, and, and again, yeah, it's it's deceiving to some degree because on the surface level, I was, you know, as we were discussing, thinking, well, it's 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 fine, but it's not really that much of a, you know, that much meat that I can jump into and, and, and eat up. Mm. Um, but slowly by the end of the film, all these characters come out and Sandra and, and the father and Morello decide that, you know, we can fight back and and, and resist these fools or make our own decisions and, and make our change for the better ourselves. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think that the ending... I mean, Fausto is, is so apologetic after Sandra runs away. Do you think that the ending is, is ambiguous uh, for Fausto? No. I... I... I don't think at all because okay. the way he reacts to Sandra moving on or disappearing is so beyond heightened where you thought he would be with it that he he reacts viscerally of like oh fuck I have fucked up so bad that I need to make this right it's it's an unexpected reaction from him to the situation and then capping that off with Sandra has the final say in it where she stops his dad from kicking the shit out of him and but at the same time when they're walking home after that she says if you do anything like that that again I'm gonna be the one to kick the shit out of you and he's just like yeah okay yeah yeah he's like scared straight essentially yeah okay I, I think by having this is what, why I wish the film had followed Sandra. <laughs> like, I'm imposing my <laughs> will onto the film. Um, because she ends up having such growth... Like, she imposes the growth on the characters that be- by becoming a strong woman and standing up for herself that it shocks Fausto into being like, oh, shit, this is what I've needed all along. Mm-hmm. And, okay, yes, I'm going to... Some discipline. I'm going to... Yeah, I'm going to fly straight now. Like, I got this. Okay. But um, then Moraldo leaves. It's a... Uh, if anything, the fact that he gets on the train is symbolic of he's moving on and growing up. He's the one. Everybody else yeah. doesn't get on the symbolic figurative no. train. They all go to bed and, and there's like the suggestion that it's going to be a, a, a repeating. Oh, 100%. And I think... Like, so I do think there's an ambiguity to, there, to that. Um, I didn't necessarily view it as like... I, I totally get where that comes from, but... My read on it was, with Moraldo leaving, it's, we have an example, like, the film shows us versions of, with Fausto, we're like, here's someone who is going to be stuck here, but is now happy with his situation, and then we have Leopoldo, where it's someone who is stuck here, well, who's come to terms, he's come to terms, come to terms, and it's like, I'm, I'm fine with my existence here, living a small life, having my wife and kid, and this is great, I'm fine. You have Leopoldo as someone who has a chance at a bigger life, but is too scared to take it and ruins that and will always be stuck in a small town regretting and having the what if. And so Moraldo is our middle ground character who sees these and is just like, fuck it, roll the dice, I'm leaving. Yeah. But the, the film finishes on, on 
on him yeah to suggest that that's the right way to go about it yeah and i mean i feel bad leaving out alberto and ricardo but i, I honestly think they're kind of nothing-ish characters certainly ricardo ricardo in 100 percent. yeah ricardo uh, coincidentally is fellini's brother oh okay like actually played by fellini's real life brother and his whole thing is he sings real good yeah i, I don't i don't know what his arc was well okay well let, let's examine alberto then for a second like yeah because ricardo was just like fifth wheel guy um, Alberto is kind of interesting. Uh, like, I kind of threw him under the bus then, but it's like, no, actually, he he's the character who, before anyone else, almost realises the situation that he's in and that he'll be perpetually stuck here and wallows in a drunken stupor about it. And so is it him, his purpose then, like, to kind of show Moraldo, like, if you don't do anything with your life, you're going to re- be like me, who's someone who's like, fuck, I am stuck here. He, Fuck this. Yeah, he's. I think he's the character that's definitely knows he's in purgatory. Yeah, that that is the perfect like word to use for a purgatory. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you have someone who, like, yeah. So you've got the character who is fine with being in purgatory, or like, you know, becomes aware of it and is like, I'm fine with this. You have the character who <laughs> is unaware. Picture that dog in the flame building. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's Fausto <laughs> in his life. I'm fine with this. <laughs> um, you have Leopoldo, who is someone who will just complain and bitch for the rest of his life. Of, it's not. It's he's not the reason he's stuck here. It's he. His chances didn't work out. He's going to perpetually blame it on someone else. Yeah, he, he's uh, introduced as the intellectual as well, which is kind of yeah. funny. You know what I mean? Like he's he's supposed to be the smart one, but he's he's almost the dumbest of all the because dumbest. he let a homophobic joke scare him away from his dream. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then you know you've got all these, and then you know Alberto being the one who is just like I I am acutely aware of my situation and I am going to wallow, <laughs> I guess, or like become aware of it, and I know there's nothing I can do about it, so fuck it, let's get drunk. Mm. And then you have that wonderful scene where he comes home drunk after the ball and sees his sister get in a cab and leave. And he's just like, ah, she got out. Yeah, well, he's hopeless, so. <laughs> yeah, and then he goes upstairs to his crying mother and he's just like, I'll never leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it, it is, there's a, there's a whole lot of sadness in there. Yeah, oh, 100%. Um, yeah, it's it's actually it's quite a deep film. Mm. And then when you start to pick it apart. Yeah, and then it's capped off amazingly. Like those final shots of the film are a amazing gut punch, where you have Moraldo actually hopping on the train and leaving, and then you have these quick dolly shots around all of the four other friends in their room sleeping at night, and it's as if you are passing them in a train carriage, just like bye. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. It's so well done. Um, yeah, I, I like the film more having had this conversation. Mm. Yeah, it's not a bad film, but it's only the yeah, my only complaint would be it, it takes a little bit too long in its setup. That once you get into that back third and you realize what the film is doing and what Fellini is saying with it, you're like, oh, this is fantastic. It's just a like we. I would have liked if we'd gotten here a little bit quicker and we could spend more time analysing this. Like, so, the, it, so the pacing's wrong? A little bit, yeah. Like, I think they spent a little bit too much time with them hanging out, partying, Fausto being a dick yeah. before the kind of implications of 
or or at least you you set up uh, you set up the the intention of the film earlier, and then you can get back to that. You know, like a, a, yeah. I mean, we're just talking about horror films, and you're in Hellraiser at the start. You have this like crazy fucked up weird horror scene, and then there's like thirty minutes of shit. Yeah. And you just wait. And you go like, I know the cool shit's going to come. I know. Yeah. The, I just have to follow this for a little while. <laughs> so if you set up the if you set up the intrigue, then you know that that kind of takes care of a lot of pacing issues. Yeah. Which the film didn't do it seems. But that's okay. It's still really quite good. It's uh, doing the research on it, it. I saw that it was a major major influence on uh, Scorsese with making Mean Streets, but. I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see that. Um, but the one that really stood out to me was, and also George Lucas with American Graffiti. Okay. And I'm like, oh, shit, that makes sense. <laughs> like, because, Amer- I don't know, when was the last time you ever saw American Graffiti? Uh, I, just, I, don't, I don't remember it. Yeah, it is essentially just a night in the life of four or five, like, you know, a group of high school friends on the cusp of adulthood, and it's like, where will they go? What will they do? And it ta- And it's just a hangout movie, kind of... The more fun version is Dazed and Confused. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's it's <laughs> Lucas essentially doing Evil Lonely, where it is a... We're just going to spend some time with these people, and it's the understanding of who and where and what they'll become in life, and whether they're going to go far, whether they're going to leave, what they're going to do. All hinges on their actions and behaviours as a character. And you're like, holy shit, this, that's what this film is. That's... Yeah. It's a marketable concept. Very much so. Be- because... You know, it's it's everybody that goes to see films has grown up or is growing up. Yeah, so it's or, marketable. Yeah, and you know, if any human being is, we're perpetually growing. We examine our life, and we you know either learn or grow from it. Like you know, that's that's being human. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it, it it's a super interesting that Fellini is examining not people stuck at an adolescent age, which he would then do it. With Armour Quarter, like, it's crazy how similar they are, <laughs> like, in terms of setting and everything. Mm. Um, but examining someone who, you know, a group of people who are 30, like, it's, it's super interesting and engaging. Like, yeah. these aren't, like, kids who are like, oh, boy, I can't believe we're all going to go off to college and this is our last summer together. It's, it's not like... It's, oh, man, college. I can't believe we all finished college and we have been hanging out for 15 years doing the same thing every week. Like... It's like Breakfast Club. And you have a, you sit, yeah. sit down for a, a detention and you go through all the characters. Exactly. It's a beautiful little character study, but it's just, I guess to some degree the characters aren't as well, like, it, it's not a microscope look at characters, but instead like a, let's use these characters to examine, like, moving forward in life and how we've presented effect, how that might affect you as a viewer. I really like that if we had watched this film uh, 200 spine numbers ago, mm-hmm. we could never have had this conversation. Not at all. Yeah. Um, I, I like that. And, and it goes both ways because, you know, there'll be films that we'd, we've previously done a, a recording of, which we had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Because we weren't familiar with, with the filmography of that, of that artist. Um, so I like now that we're getting to the stage where we can talk about a film like A Bit of Loney, but because we've seen The White Sheik, because we've seen La Strada, everything is contextualised. Exactly. That's the perfect... Like, we have the contextualization to be able to discuss in the grander scheme of what 
this piece of art that Fellini has created says about him, says about his body, like where it sits in his body of work, what it's doing in relation to that. We yeah, and we'd be lost for words and be like, oh no, fucking, it was a bit boring until forty-five minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which we would have said, yeah, in previous episodes. Given you know we, when we first started, so it, it's times like this. Like <laughs> I think I actually said to Claire, like, man, I'm glad, like, because I had the, this exact same conversation with her. Like, holy shit, we've we're able to contextualize. And a little while ago, we had um, a wonderful listener sort of say that, hey, you guys have grown as <laughs> film reviewers. This has really been really interesting, and you can do a okay job now, <laughs> which we appreciate. <laughs> um, but it, it, it makes me really happy that, uh, like, our first hundred or so episodes are, like, not on the RSS feed. <laughs> like, the, the algorithm of the website doesn't kind of publish those out on Spotify and iTunes. Like, you have to dig on the website to try and find and download those, because yeah. I would shudder to think of our analysis of some of that stuff That's fine. back then. I, I'm fine with that, because, first of all, it's called a Criterion Quest. Yes. And you have to start somewhere, and it's, you know, you've got to start at number one, it seems. And that was our whole idea with starting this was like we're gonna go on a quest to try and understand cinema (laughs) and hopefully we're getting there (laughs) yeah so it's like moments like these where i go like okay we're we're getting somewhere yes uh so it's nice Mm. um stop masturbating now yes (laughs) it's not us just being idiots (laughs) i mean it's kind of that but um but i know we've kind of hit everything on my notes did you have anything else with this one or Uh, i don't think so don't think so all right, we'll move on to the little bits of trivia I've got. Uh, so the film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Writing, Story, and Screenplay written directly for the screen. It was also nominated for the Golden Lion at the 1953 Venice Film Festival, where it was awarded the Silver Lion. Um, I thought this was super interesting. The part of uh, Sergio Natale, who is like the, the great actor who acts in Leopoldo's play, um was originally offered to the amazing Italian director Vittorio De Sica, who made, uh, like, the first one that comes to mind is Bicycle Thief. Uh-huh. Like, amazing, amazing f- filmmaker. Uh, he uh, politely declined as he was concerned that the character's homosexuality might mark the director himself as a homosexual. Oh, that's, that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. But I, I chalked that up to old man who like you know he's in his 70s 80s at that point like you know he, in the 50s like like okay but that's like would have been super interesting to be like and that's a kind of it would have been this wonderful meta of like the you know Vittorio De Sica is in a Fellini film it's kind of like the passing of the torch the next great Italian filmmaker did, did you just um, give that guy an, uh, an okay because he's old I gave him an okay because he's old and the time that this took place was 70 years ago. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> if, ne- if say, David Fincher was offered a role in, like, a Spike Jones film and he and he turned it down because, like, I don't want to play a gay guy, I'd be like, whoa, Fincher, that's weird. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, time and place, context, I guess. Like, you know. I give a pass with an asterisk. Time, place, and age. That's- yeah. Um, I thought this was super interesting. Uh, reportedly, this is said to be one of Stanley Kubrick's favorite films of all time. Serious? Yeah. And then I kind of, like, with our discussion, I'm like, oh, I kind of get that now. Where it's like, stuff happens, and then on the tail end of it, you're like, oh, it was all meaning stuff. <laughs> like, this is all in relation to 
character de- like uh, char- deep character study. <laughs> yeah, okay. I gotcha. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's always weird when yeah you go. I mean, I, I look at the the Criterion picks, the closet picks, you know, mm. and some of those really surprise me. Oh yeah, very much. I mean, so. like people just have a sensibility to it. Yeah, just pull out some random thing and go like, I love this, and I go like, okay. Yeah, but again, some people like you know. If you if we got a chance to go into the closet, like some of the stuff that we'd pull out, they'd be like, "Really, that one? Okay." Like, I mean, I keep like you know, if, if, like any time of someone's like, "Oh, what should I watch from Criterion?" I'm always now just like, "Cranes are flying, cranes are flying, and Ikaru. Fucking watch those two. <laughs> like, just 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 those two. <laughs> and I mean, shit, Criterion has just re-released Cranes are flying on Blu-ray. Like, now's the time. Watch that fucking movie. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, the last little bit of trivia are Fellini intended uh, to continue the story of the protagonist of the film Moraldo Rubin uh, in a movie called entitled Moraldo in the City in which a young man would experience big city life for the first time and suffer frustration, grief and disillusionment uh, the film was never made but the script has been published in English and some aspects of the narrative apparently inspired parts of Fellini's later film La Dolce Vita which uh, is a great movie from 1960. We've done that one, right? Mm-mm. Oh, we haven't. That's like in the six, seven hundreds, I think. Oh, okay. It, it was yeah. uh, like a surprisingly late edition for Fellini because it's considered to be like on par with like Eight and a Half La Strada. It's like the go-to Fellini film. It's like, you know, the guy in the suit playing yeah, the Yeah, I've, I've heard of it yeah. a lot. <laughs> that's why I thought I'd already seen it. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, that's really about it. I mean, the, I mean, I did have one thing when Moraldo says goodbye to the young paperboy, uh, the goodbye Guido, the last thing he said is actually Fellini himself dubbing over the voice as like a symbolic, like I'm moving on, I'm going on for oh, greater things. Nice. Yeah. 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 And then he would make his first proper awesome film. Yeah. So. And it also kind of helps to hammer home the kind of autobiographical elements of this film as like Fellini being the person who left the small seat, like seaside village and Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. So Kubrick, maybe Kubrick knows a lot about Fellini. He's like, this is why. If you know heaps about Fellini, it's a great film. Yeah, it all makes sense. Um, but we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. So it's still in print from Criterion as a one disc DVD. It's also available on the Criterion channel, Amazon, iTunes, all that stuff. But uh, the Criterion channel and the physical release comes with. Vitoma Lisa, an exclusive documentary featuring interviews with the late actor Leopoldo Tresta, uh, actor Fellini, uh, actor Franco, and you know what, I'm not going to even bother, there's a lot of consonants <laughs> in all of these names, uh, lots of people, the assistant director, a biographer, um, you know, the director of the Fellini Foundation, lots of people. <laughs> I've had a beer or two. I'm not going to try and stumble over it. That's fine. That's fine. A uh, collection of still fo- uh, still photographs, posters, memorabilia, original theatrical trailer, uh, as well as the usual booklet and essays that Criterion usually do. So, decent enough version. Yeah. But, before you said, uh, you know, on our whole Criterion quest, we're, we're kind of moving forward, we're getting on with stuff, we're hitting something that uh, I'm really excited for. Next week, we're going to be doing Slacker by Richard Linkletter, one of the classic 1990 American independent films. Yeah, I've never seen it, Mm. Uh, but I'm a fan of Linkletter, mostly. Mostly. I I was actually, the other night, um, looking through his IMDb, kind of in prep for Slacker, I'm like, oh, fucking the the Before trilogy, like, amazing. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Bernie. 
Um, you know, obviously tasting confused. And then you see stuff like the Bad News Bears remake. You're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, what I mean. Why'd you do that? That's what I mean. <laughs> and it's like right next to like Waking Life as well. You're like, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is odd. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, this is like these, I, I keep saying it, but these next three are films that I really, really love. And I'm very excited to do the episodes because i'm very excited to get your takes on them specifically okay. that's that's yeah i'm, I'm excited to give them yeah i i think slacker is not going to be what you think it is and I, i'm very intrigued so tune in next week for that but um otherwise you can send us an email at the criterion quest at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Criterion Quest. Uh, we've been getting some people sending some stuff in. Uh, we really love hearing from you guys, so keep it up. Um, otherwise, stay tuned for Slacker. But for this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time. <laughs>